Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Douglas, welcome back to the podcast. It's uh, good to be here with you. He lied. Who lied? <laughs> What? Come on. All right. Well, is it just me or um, are you looking a little older since the last time I saw you there, old man? Older? Uh, older. Oh, yes. We had a, a delightful birthday, did we not? Delightful, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you celebrate with the family there? We had a great time. We're empty nesters now. Mm. So having the kids over is especially a nice treat it's a whole different world when you really find yourself getting super excited every time they come near. <laughs> ah, that's nice. That's nice to hear. Yeah, my yeah. Uh, we I don't know that we did celebrate with my girls. We were out of town. We were in uh, Minneapolis. I saw a couple of shows, squeezed a couple of those, closed the lake cabin down up there in Minnesota, and then went down into the city, saw uh, Father John Misty, and then awesome. booked it back to Santa Fe. Two full days of driving from there. Always pretty un- unpleasant of a drive, honestly. Well, gold frickin' star, you've put in so many goddamn miles the past month and a half. It's like yeah, crazy. Yeah, I went Minnesota to St. Louis, St. Louis to Santa Fe, Santa Fe back to Plaza, Plaza back to Minnesota, closed it all down, came back to Santa Fe. So, And those are diagonal. Yeah. Like We're used to, as artists, <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of us are used to these uh, highway miles. You know, you get on the one highway, yeah. you get on 61, you get on 64, you get on 10, you know. You, know, you you drive across the country these ways. Uh, Minnesota to Santa Fe is is a uh, Crimea River, but it's it's uh they're diagonal, so you're in these shitty little <laughs> back roads the entire time. And and again, driving through methy America, and it's not the most pleasant. So uh, anyway, it's, I'm uh, I'm road yeah right. I'm road hard. So like we said, you had your birthday on Friday. Mine was Saturday. Have you ever done the uh, the count back? Will have you ever thought back to where it all started? No. Nine months previous to our birthday? Uh, you know, I do it to other people, but I've never thought about my own parents having sex. No. So well, continue with your nauseating banter, Douglas. What do you got for me? That would, when, be, <laughs> that would be our parents had a little uh, New Year's Eve fun, let's hey, just say. All right. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of September around that birthdays. My brother-in-law, Matt, is a – you know, that's funny. I didn't ever put it onto myself, but I, I teased my wife and we're like, you're – your parents like New Year's Eve. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> His son has a birthday like one day away too. So yeah. Okay. The, the artist friends we had Keena Crow this week and Thomas Spake and Cindy Lyric are one of our guests from last year. <laughs> New so Year's we've Eve. got ourselves a whole tribe of Libras out there that came out of a nice New Year's Eve romp. Uh, celebration. <laughs> All right. Good for them. Good for Ma and Pa. I'll have to. I, I'm not going to bring that up to them. That's not no. uh, what we talk about. All right. Yeah, I, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember as a kid bringing up the topic to my mom, and uh, I said to her, "Did you and Dad have sex before you got married?" You I asked came your parents a... about sex with your parent. You, you did uh, that. I did. Yeah. Huh? You did you? No, never once. <laughs> I remember my dad on the way to school one time. Maybe it was camp. Actually, I think it was camp. He's like, "Well, do you guys?" He's like, "Do you know where babies come from?" And I'm like, "Yeah, totally." And so he never brought it up again. But if he'd press me on it and be like, yeah, they come from your stomach. That's right. 
there in your. That's right. Come Don't out of your stomach. You actually know the answer I to can that. See, like how fat that lady is. Clearly, it's in her stomach. Like, all right. Course, well, Dad. you jumped on my joke here, Armstrong. So right, I was asking right, my mom if, because my parents were divorced at the time, and I'm a teenager, and I'm feeling a little bit mouthy. So, mom, did you and dad have sex before marriage? Because we come from this Catholic family, this upbringing. And she says, no. She says, I never would have married him if I had. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, man. Wow. I'm like, all right, mom. <laughs> all right. Poor Time dad. real. <laughs> yeah. Damn. We're getting into Howard Stern territory. But, yeah, my parents, um, nah, we're not going there. That's, we're done. Not, let's not, move not on, today, Douglas. What ladies else you and got? gentlemen, moving on. What else is on the list? Well, it's been an uh, interesting week of shows. We had to take a little week in between because there's just so much on the schedule. And I feel for those folks out in Armonk, New York, who froze their butts off last weekend. I don't. Apparently, they had killer weekend. Uh, th the sales were good. I mean, that's what I heard. Yeah, that's it was great. chilly, but, you know, uh, chilly, but they, I don't know. Maybe this is this is people putting the bright foot forward. But I did hear good things coming out of Armonk. The folks that come out to that show support it, and mm -hmm. they always run a tight ship. So I'm, I'm hoping that they got through. Well, we always say shitty weather keeps the tire kickers away, so... Yeah, um, yeah, they had sure. the serious ones out. Sure, I didn't even look at the weather too much. It was pretty cold. Oh my god, I got a few photos from friends over the weekend. Literally, it was one of those weekends where people were wearing every single thing they brought in their suitcase. Ugh. You know, multiple layers, just nightmare. That seems to always happen to me whenever I'm traveling in the south in the fall. Like you go yeah. and you do a particular show and it's like, it's going to be warm. And then all of a sudden it's 48 when you wake up in the morning, you have to go buy stuff or you're wearing moving blankets. Oh, jeez. Yeah. My worst story of freezing my ass off was Oklahoma City. Jeez, had to be a decade ago. Mm. Shows can't control the weather. This is no diss on any of the shows. But we were freezing. It was one of those deals where it was, I think, 40 for a high. And your body Ooh. temperature only needs to drop the tiniest amount for you to get like weird, you know. <laughs> well, I'm already weird, but yeah. I experienced a little hypothermia at that show. Yikes. Serious. Dude. And, you, and then you got naked and rolled around in a sleeping bag with Renee. There you go. That's how you're supposed yeah. to handle it. Nauseating. Nauseating. <laughs> nauseating. Banter. That's no, um, I, I, at we the had seven minute kids. mark. More nauseating banter. Nauseating has kicked in. I mean, that's supposed to be, you know, you get in the sleeping bag and, and that's how you're supposed to handle it. But how do you handle that at a show? My booth neighbor at the show was Elaine Leno. And I'm talking to her and this is like midday and I'm starting to sound drunk. And she says, Douglas, are you drinking? <laughs> no. So she takes me wow. by the hand and says, come with me. We're going over to the... The medic. Sleeping bag. I'll, Come I'll, on, Douglas. We're going to the sleeping going, bag. Yeah, into the sleeping bag. All, all right. right but anyway, so all day, all of the artists are just because it's a commission show. And so we all need to stay open because every sale that gets made goes through the organization. So we were hmm. all kind of complaining that day. You know, we're contractually obligated to stay open. So that was the thing, you know, like little high school kids will repeat a line over. We're contractually op obligated to stay open. So she walks me over to the medic. They start asking me questions I should know, like how old I am. And I'm like, wait, I know my birthday, but I, I literally, it startled me. I'm like, I don't actually know how old I am. Oh, man. So the paramedic there said, we need you to shut down and go to the hospital. <laughs> That's all it takes? That's just, all it takes. Yeah. And so- I close early at OKC? Just be like, so, I don't know. I just pissed myself. I don't know my name. My smart ass response to that was- I can't go to the hospital because I am contractually obligated to nice. stay open. Nice. I announced this in front of an entire room of people. And the director at the time, she says, 
Well, I'm the director of the show, and all of a sudden my heart sank like, oh, my God, I just made an asshole comment in front of the director. And she said, I will release you from your contract. You may go to the doctor. <laughs> Big of her. That's awesome. Good Lord. So, you know, we get too hot, we get too cold, it all messes with us. Yeah, I did the – we've all done the, the get too hot thing. I remember setting up at uh, St. Louis one year and getting way overheated, and, and this was after that long – drive in from uh, Sausalito and I just was started mm. shaking, kind of uncontrollably shaking. I don't know. Just felt like a poor homeless guy just sitting in the air condition of some fast food joint. I just don't know. Just trying to it's, regulate. It's, it's scary. You got to take care of yourself. Listen to your body, you know? Yeah. Speaking of hot shows, I'm thinking of when you were talking about that memory out at St. Louis. I remember there was a, a lakefront festival that was hotter than hell and people were going down like flies. Yeah, yeah I did that and one too. And I just had a conversation with the director of the lakefront show. I have some news to break. Shut the fuck up. What do you got? She said she can't guarantee that they're coming back. They're working on it. They're working on the initial planning. So we shouldn't get down in the dumps and think they're closed up for sure. They are going to try and relaunch it. Can you say that? She emailed me and she said it in print. All right. She's she's okay with announcing that. That I mean, is that really an announcement though? They're trying. That's good. It's not an announcement. It it basically it, it, they're trying. So it's right. not like it's on for sure. But the wheels are spinning. The the word was people were wondering if it was going to happen again. So cool. well, I hope it does. It's good I to always know they're love trying. that show. I I love love Milwaukee. I'm a huge yeah. fan of Milwaukee. I that town just embraced me the last time I did that show um or and just came through Milwaukee. I just uh, I could not think more highly of the the whole community. I just really dug it. Yeah. It's a it's a well put on show. And so we'll hope they do it. I think there'll be a lot of us happy to have that one back on yeah, the back on the list. With all the bad news that you're hearing with some of these some of these shows folding up and and uh canceling and going out. You know, you hear like um what was it? Uh, the Deep Ellum show closed its doors. Right. They're done for good supposedly and it's just sad and and to to the venues that we lose and have lost during covid it's american troubling. craft expo at the botanic gardens as they announced this was their last year at it there's a yeah. lot of them that are I can't remember any more off the top of my head, but yeah, that's that's been the word. Yeah, and you wonder if – I don't know. You wonder if somebody will come along and fill the void, but it's a tough business to get started in, especially these days. We had this conversation after Ann Arbor. Mo Riley's retiring. She's been wanting to retire, but she didn't want the show to fold if there's nobody to step up and take her place. Okay. So I, I really appreciate a lot of these directors who are trying to pass the baton and not yeah. just letting it fall apart. That means a lot. And there are some great young up-and-comer uh, show directors that are, mm -hmm. are taking the the baton for some of these and uh, your Sarah Omlofs of St. Louis. I mean, some of these shows are, are just so tightly run that, that you don't you don't worry about them. Mm -hmm. Take like Gasparilla. They've got this thing in place where there's a new director every year, but it's part of their their group. You know, the director was oh, like the boards or whatever, like well, a rotating. No, they, yeah, like a, the way I understand it, and, and somebody will come out there and correct me if I'm wrong, but they've got a group that runs it. And it's like, well, this person slides and to the director role after having been in other roles during the show. Somebody else just takes the baton as far as the head of it. But it's this well-oiled machine. So by the time you go to the show, it, it, you don't necessarily notice that it's uh, that it's a new director or that it's a new – it's not really a new director. It's all part of the same, same group that runs it. I see. So that's good because then whoever is in charge has taken on many other – Exactly. They're already trained. You know, trained. other tasks. So they kind of get a broader picture that way. That's exactly. Cool. And they already know the rules and can enforce them and follow them. Speaking of Gasparilla, wasn't that good news that they got even more award money to offer yeah, next that's year? Thick. 
That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of money there, uh, prize money for Gasparilla, and they opened it back up when they found that out just in case that enticed some more people to apply. I think they may have closed by by the time this airs, but you have to check it out for yourself. Speaking Uh, of applying, did you get over your mental block and get some applications out there for next year? Yeah, finally, threw a bunch at them. And you know what I did is that I put some new images on there uh, and I did not date one of them. And I'm using that image for all of my apps. So mm. I have to open up every single last one of them that's requiring a certain date on that and, and redate the piece. So, mm. yeah, just annoying. Uh, my personal error. Can't blame anybody but myself, but super annoying that I have to go back and do that. Yeah. All right. uh, On to the next topic, my friend. What else you got on the docket? Well, I found something interesting. Over the years, you know, you and I have pointed out our differences and what kind of makes this podcast for us so interesting is that we come with such different experiences. Sure. And one time we kind of brushed on the topic of the difference between an artist versus a craftsperson or, or right. you know, art versus craft. I mean, obviously that fits our situation right here big time. Yeah. And I will say that as a craft artist, like I kind of stumble over my voice a little bit when it's like the whole idea of what's the message behind the work. And certainly a craft, someone who works in craft can be an artist. Well, of course. Yeah, where there's a message coming out of it. But then a fine craftsperson who works in non-functional craft, it does not have to have this message. It's really about a celebration of materials, you know? It's and like quality and design and, you know, I mean, it's there's a lot to it. And I have a lot of yeah. empathy for craft artists because I used to be one. Uh-huh. You know, my first body of work uh, with my ex was uh, was craft. And so I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and had, I, do you feel like you get defensive at all when it comes yeah. to that that conversation? I haven't. I haven't always had the right words to say until I, I kind of looked into it more to kind of understand the differences between if artist is all about message. I mean, your work isn't about the wood panels. You're not taking wood panels sure. and turning them into the most beautiful wood panels you could make them. Right. It's not but about I, that. It's not about the materials. In this case, it's about the message behind it. Well, then it. I can also get – I can get – defensive to maybe a little bit where I'm like, I definitely am an illustrator. I was trained as an illustrator and uh, I'm taking that and trying to take it to a fine art level, but try as I might, it's it's illustration. I'm a storyteller and I have no problem with that. And I I embrace that, but it's a large scale coming from almost like the Andrew Wyeth kind of school, not that talented, but that, that kind of school of storytelling, illustration, that kind of thing. So I get Mm -hmm. it. It's a complete difference that you and I have. And I like Mm -hmm. that. It's the yin and the yang of the show, craft artist versus um, pinky out artist. But uh, it's, 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 uh, it's interesting. Well, there's an intellectualism behind some of the work. I mean, behind artists work where, you know, you're conveying a message, other, other artists are, you know, like we talked to Lisa Christine, today on the show. And she's got a message she's trying to convey. She's trying to make a connection with people, with communities, and sharing that connection. Ella last week talked about creating stories. And it makes me think about what I do and my personal connection to my work. For me, the minute I dipped in the, the glass furnace and started playing with molten glass, 
I got this sense of attraction. It was just beyond anything. That, sure. And I just needed to keep playing with it to see what I could make it do, how I could make it turn out. I was not a very good craft artist. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't I didn't really like the the craft that I was working on necessarily after yeah. uh, it, it it carried its weight for a while. Would you say that you're most fulfilled with telling stories? That oh, that yeah, is... totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like with this body of work, when I first started it, I was like, you know, with craft, you have to make it again every day or it goes to hell. That was one of those storybook. You remember the story people? Okay. They ended up being in all these different craft stores and stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, that was a saying that I, I thought was interesting that applied to craft. Like you have to make it again every day. So there's a joy and a something in the repetition that happens with a craft artist that you have to do, the repetition and the skill that it takes. Mm -hmm. When I first started this body of work, I was like, I'm never repeating another thing. I'm only doing right. this one thing. And it, it drove me a little bit crazy. Now I'm taking a little bit to a craft artist and I'll say different things with the same series each time. And each one is definitely unique, but I'll definitely go dip back in the same well of uh, the same stories that I've told again and again, if that makes sense. It does. It does totally make sense. And yeah, I just felt like I had the words behind what motivates the work for me. And it really is this love of the material. And just, and, and you know, that changes. That changes for people. You had a shift where you worked in a certain way and moved into another way. So it's kind of cool as artists that whatever gets us jazzed and motivated to do what we do, that's, right. that's the special sauce. Well, here's an interesting segue yeah. out of that, which is, is I, I do find sometimes artists will be like, They'll be like, well, shows aren't as good as they used to be. And it's like you look at their work and it's like, well, you've been making the exact same thing for 25 years and selling at the exact same shows. How do you expect the shows to continue to support a work yeah. that doesn't change, that doesn't evolve? So yeah. I think that's interesting. Sometimes you have to look at, at the common denominator. It's like, well, hey, don't get me wrong. I've been to some terrible shows. I've been to some shows that are, are just dogs for me. And I, it's they're not my market. They're other people's. And you just have to look at the common denominator. And sometimes that common denominator is you. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't think I suck, but my, I might be not what this show wants. <laughs> so it's yeah. like the common, it's like, okay, well, if I show the same four paintings at the same show every year, I'm not going to sell them every year. Mm -hmm. You know, Douglas, you talk about the kind of the yin and the yang of, of you and me doing this, the fine craft versus you know illustration or fine art or whatever you want to call it. But then uh, you get into a conversation with Lisa today on this week's show. And I was like, I almost wanted to be like, okay, I retire. Uh, you you just talk to her every week. <laughs> I'm oh. done. Like <laughs> She had so many stories and so many different things. And there were so many little things that like, that I found fascinating. She's talking about getting chased by guards with guns and, and chased out of diamond mines. And I, these are stories I'm like, okay, just tell that story for an hour. You know, I don't even want to hear anything else. It, it, it was fascinating. And the little glimmers of things that you got from her just made me want to kind of dig down deep into her story even more. So thanks for this, this talk that's coming up. I think the longer we do this project, it's less about talking specifically about an artist's career trajectory yeah. and and it's evolving more into these backstories without doing a direct correlation to the work talking about these experiences make the work have that much more meaning and it gets inspired by the fact that she risks so much to help people 
And I'm really excited about this talk, and I can't wait for everyone to hear everything she had to say. Then let's be quiet and let's get right to it. Let's do it. Here's Lisa Christine coming from California, not the Midwest, finally. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap, the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. Hey, Will, do you remember the old way of doing these applications with red dots on the slides and self-addressed stamped envelopes? Do you uh, still have a rotary phone, Douglas? No, I don't remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just like that they were with us back then when we made the switch from analog to digital. It's a huge switch, and now Zap is the industry standard. And they're always creating features that make our lives easier, too. So I do like what Zap does, and I do like that most of the shows I apply to are on Zapplication. Exactly. So I personally appreciate what Zap is doing, and thanks for not making us reinvent the wheel every single week like we used to have to do. Lisa, Christine, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. It's good to see you. Good to see you as well. First time we met, I don't know if you remember, it was 20 years ago at the Wells Street Art Festival. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? When I started this podcast project and I was thinking of people I'd like to talk to, your work has always left a big impression on me. And so I went to kind of look at your website and look at your social media. And oh, my God, I was like blown away at the scope of where your career has gone. Does it even surprise you how big of a presence you have out there? Uh, That's very gracious of you. Yeah, I, I feel more than anything, just grateful, you know, because this whole arc of art and arc of discovery of ourselves through art and discovery of the world through my work in particular, it's like it just feels really good. And it is mind-blowing to me sometimes, but it it also feels like that uh, that idea of ripples going out, you know? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, when you take the next step, and we'll get into the particulars here, we're just kind of setting things up, but it's like when you take the next step, you don't envision like where those big ripples are going to eventually end up. And so I'm sure you're just going like one step at a time. And at some point, it might turn into like a a boulder rolling downhill or a freight (laughs) train picking up steam. (laughs) Right. So has photography always been the medium that you've worked in? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I was always, I I did a lot of drawing. Mm -hmm. I've always been a writer. I love writing poetry and I love playing musical instruments and, Mm -hmm. and I love photography, but actually it wasn't at all my intention to, to be a photographer. It sort of fell in my lap as a career choice or as a career in general. Sure. Actually went to school to study fashion design and merchandising and I finished it and I was like, oh, well, that was nice, but no, that's not going to be. So you got to the end of it and you were like ready to pivot into something else. It was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I left the country, you know, and like anyone who leaves a country, one brings a camera and I had been um, photographing since I was 11 and I had a mentor who taught me how to print Sibachrome. So it's like, I knew how to do things. It was part of a skill of mine and a joy of mine, much like writing or drawing or music, but It just happened to get feet, you know? So your first adventure away from the U.S., it wasn't necessarily to go photograph. It was to go have an experience. It was that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I had always had a yearning since I was a little kid to go out into the world and to be with people that lived a lot closer to the earth. Because I think like Mm. my childhood was kind of rocky. And like my mom had these anthropology books. I used to look at these people covered with feathers and mud. And from my childlike perspective, I think they they sort of resembled the earth itself and seemed to me rather unshakable. 
And I did not in any way feel unshakable. And I remember walking out into the middle of the street and determining when I was old enough, I would go out there and meet those people. And I would find out what it was they had so I could bring it into my own life. So I always think of going out into the world for me as a way to discover possibility for my life and a way to discover strength for my life. Mm-hmm. And it never was frightening to me. I always felt like it was a form of discovery mm-hmm. of the world, but also the inner world, you know? Wow. So to to be so like curious and to have such a knowing at that age, like I'm going to go figure out who these people are to explore that. I mean, that's that's pretty profound. That's pretty cool. So what was it like when you had that first experience? Well, I was gone for five years. Oh, this wasn't a short trip. This it was, was like not. immersion. <laughs> it was total immersion. And, and it's funny because, you know, I give a lot of talks and, and I've given a, a few talks to photography groups and one years ago. And I asked instead of being paid, gosh, would you mind just giving me your, you know, your feedback? Because feedback is vital, right? And, right, and right. one of them wrote me, you must be a trust fund baby. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought that was so brilliant because... Indeed, that was the antithesis of who I was. But so when I went away traveling for five years, what that means is you've got a pack on your back that fits your camera and you're bopping around at like five bucks a day or two bucks a day. And I had saved $3,000 over the course of a few years and off I went into the wild, wild world. And um, oh, it was just so awesome. I feel like for me, that's the true university, you know. Um, I learned so much from that experience and continue to when I travel. So where did you land initially? Like what, how did it kind of evolve those five years? Was it lots of different places, lots of different journeys? Well, initially it was um, in Europe. I landed. The intention was not to remain there, but I had uh, relatives and continued to in in Denmark. Mm. So I bopped around Europe and did all that and ended up in down in Egypt at one point and maybe I don't know, like seven months, eight months later. And I remember being in Cairo and Mm -hmm. seeing, like I was 18, you know, and seeing these uh, brochures on these temples in Thailand. I remember distinctly looking at it and and thinking, oh, I won't be home for a long time. That was, uh, it was just, that just opened it up. Yeah. I just felt like there was so much to see and there was so much to learn. But I remember that distinct thought, like it's, I won't be home for a long time. There's too much. Okay. But then I ended up in, in you know, the Middle East and Asia and then Africa and just kind of all over in South America. It just kind of evolved and it was marvelous. Your work has evolved into exposing human rights issues. And obviously there was probably a progression from getting into the humanity of it. Did it start as capturing scenery or was it right away you just started to bond with other people? I've always been a humanistic photographer and Mm. I I love landscape and I, I know many photographers who do that so well. I've never been drawn to photograph it, although I I very much enjoy being in it. Mm. I love connecting with people. You know, the minute I'm pressing that exposure in that authentic space, it's just such a a wonderful connection for me. But I've always been into photographing people. That's always mm-hmm. been an interest to me. So that was the way it started back then? Was always. Even getting... even when I was 11, my, my aunt and uncle, who greatly raised me actually in part, they gave me my first camera. And I remember mm-hmm. I would go out and make photos of, you know, my family and my friends, but not in the typical kind of grinning sort of way. Right. I, I was always sort of drawn to someone's infinity, their sense of self, their sense of ponderance about 
themselves or their lives or a brooding intensity. Like that was always somehow interesting to me. And it felt more real to me, um, mm-hmm. not to displace joy. Joy always has a wonderful place in the world, but somehow photographically that moved me. That the eyes or the the composition or whatever's going on in the photo is really drawing something out of what's happening internally of the subject is, mm-hmm. is that right? Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yes. What was kind of a defining moment where you went from doing this as artwork, capturing people, capturing their experience, and then you kind of had that shift towards activism and humanitarianism. Was there something that kind of led to that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think there was, I always feel like art, in whatever form we happen to take it on as artists, they're always our teachers. So it's really for me in hindsight that I recognized what art was for me. And and, mm-hmm. and as in a notion, when I think of my body of work, it's it's most certainly about inspiring unity. You know, this notion that in our differences, we are one. The idea that all of us matter and all of us deserve to be seen and deserve basic human rights, you know, like shelter and food and decency. And then later, it must have been in the early 2000s, I, I learned about slavery. And it was really, it was really, I had been asked to be the exhibitor for the World Peace Summit in Vancouver with His Holiness Dalai Lama and other Nobel laureates. And while I was there exhibiting, someone approached me and, and they said, wow, have you ever thought of documenting slavery? And I, and I said, what, what are you talking about? Okay. So your body of work that you had been capturing for years was already being recognized. And in this show, what was the name of the show for, you said, the Pope and Dalai Lama? It was a World Peace Summit. Well, I had just been chosen to be the exhibitor because being that that was a summit on peacekeeping, my work is about diversity and right and inclusion. And so I think that's why they had asked me to be the exhibitor. So was being approached to focus on slavery, was that kind of a pivotal shift when things kind of got ramped up a bit or, or, or went deeper? Yeah, no, you know, actually, well, the summit itself was was really on peace in the world. And it just happened to be that one of the participants was from a nonprofit that fought slavery uh, and approached me. And that's how the conversation started for me. Right. Just having somebody tell me that actually did exist. And while I had known that some trafficking was present in our world, and that I assumed to be sex trafficking, I didn't understand that the numbers were at some 27 million. And by the way, the new estimates just came out from Walk Free and the ILO and the IOM that let us know that today there's more than 50 million people that are enslaved. Those are the new stats. So I think back then when nobody really knew that slavery happened. Today, you see slavery and trafficking in all the newspapers. And mm-hmm. and that's because people believe it. But back then, the, the few foundations who were trying to get funding, they couldn't get it because people didn't even believe it existed. So I, who also hadn't realized it when my entire career is based on, you know, observing others. I've been to like 150 countries. I'm out in the world constantly mm-hmm. noting that I had missed observing it, like I had not seen it. Mm. I was so troubled, you know, I was so troubled. I'm sure, I'm sure it was like, it was right in front of your face. And then you see it through a different lens, I guess, pun intended, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and you see it through that lens and suddenly it becomes deeply personal. 
Yeah, it did. And I couldn't sleep. And I like within a week after I left the summit, I booked a flight and flew down to Los Angeles. And I met with the founders of an organization called Free the Slave, who I've raised a lot of money for through my work. Mm. We we met and came up with this plan. And that kind of set me off on a whole new journey where I would fly around the world and document, in fact, many of the countries that I had spent a lot of time in. But this time I would see really the skeletons in the closet. I would see it from such a different vantage point. So you were going back to places you were familiar with, mm-hmm. with a new a new vantage point? Oh, yes. Mm. And totally different. <laughs> totally different. Totally different. Like different, uh, totally different conditions, you're saying? Like different situations? Yeah, well, certainly different situations. And instead of me being on my own with my small team, I was with abolitionists that were working undercover. I went to many countries around the world documenting in brothels and illegal gold mines like hundreds of feet deep in the ground down dark holes where only the slaves would go down and brick kilns and all all kinds of farming and agriculture and domestic servitude and all these different things. And of course, when I look back on that body of work, you know, the whole body of work, which as you might imagine, it was (laughs) dangerous to do. It was made in little windows of like 10 to 20 minutes max that whole body of work because of the lack of safety for me and also those people that were forced to be enslaved in the situations. Yeah, that's one of the main questions I was wondering, because I mean, you're exposing these human rights violations. It's not like people who are enslaving these folks are just opening up the doors and say, hey, come on in and let me show you what we're doing here, right? Yeah, they don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) No red carpet, nothing. No welcome sign. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, precarious. is the the work that you did on exposing slavery is that was that whole initiative part of one project or is it something you visit revisit over time and and are in those situations again? Yeah, that was it in it initially, I think that body of work I started making in something like 2009. Okay. And I continued photographing in the field uh slavery and I've also do a a great deal of advocacy around the topic of modern day slavery. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I speak all over the world to advocate for awareness building and education and law changes and implementation of laws. To me, that's deeply important. And I think that what photography has or artwork in general has is the ability to transcend language. So you have this visual aha that is very touching to people and it very quickly pulls people out of their heads into the hearts. And Mm -hmm. that's why I'm like, I'm often asked to open plenaries at the UN or the Vatican or other heads of state around the world, because it becomes personal becomes this is our brother and sisters around the world and they're being treated like this. So what can we do? Mm -hmm. Because you can't turn your face away once you've seen it. How do you form those connections with people who speak different languages, who have, you know, their culture is quite different from what you're used to. How do you, how do you find your way in there, into the heart like that, you know, into their situation? Do you mean the greater body of work or modern day slavery? I guess, I guess that's true. You, you kind of have two different intentions or different focuses when you maybe are traveling. Is that true? Like they're very different. <laughs> yeah, they're very different. Like the one, the slavery that we were talking about, that was kind of like, get in, get the photos, use that work for speaking, for shining a light. 
and that kind of thing. But then the greater body of work, it sounds like you are becoming part of the community, coming in and meeting with people, almost being like a fly on the wall. Is that is that what your experience is like? Um, well, with the modern day slavery work, it's definitively working with abolitionists on the ground. It would be impossible to gain access otherwise because their sure. trust is imbued within the community. And it's very particular in the moments we can go in. They're just constantly on their cell phones. There's a lot of safety involved in that. And it's very quick, agile, on the feet, 35 millimeter, bang it out, quick. Um, My other work is more ponderous. My other work is about meeting with the heart. It's really about learning about people, getting to know them, working together with them, but only after I have permission. I never photograph without permission ever right. in any situation. It's not interesting mm -hmm. to me, but, but that work, you know, I have a lot more time so I can use my four by five and medium format. It's a totally different feel, okay. but, but both have their place. And I think both have their messages too, because no matter how you look at it, it's sort of, to me, even in the slavery work, even if the situation is completely dire and full of such hazard and hardship, what's interesting to me is the dignity of that person enduring it. Okay. So my work is always has an emblem of that, I believe. That's important to me. And in that way, they're very similar in that way they are. Okay. The but kernel. I hope that they both, yeah, that they both have their message because really the message about all of my work is to, to kind of pause and look at one another and remember that we're all in this thing with a capital L spelled L-I-F-E and we're all in it together. Sure. All of us matter. That goes for the refugee crisis, for any atrocity happening around the world and slavery and mm -hmm. human rights issues and violations. And just, you know, your partner in the room, you know, your husband, your wife, all of it, it's all relational. Mm -hmm. And it's all about being seen and being respected, you know. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that because in your overall body of work, there's like two intentions or two focuses. And so when I ask some of these questions, uh, I see that they need to be pointedly different because it's almost like the when you're working with the abolitionists that is it's like journalism in a way i mean you're using you're using your art but it's a way to speak out and to reveal what's happening yes and then the other it almost sounds like there's not like the adrenaline rush it, you know what i mean no it's very different <laughs> You don't have to be ready to, you know, run your ass off when someone's chasing you with a gun. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds, that sounds. I've been I mean, for the most part, extremely fortunate, but, but there are just situations that are much more dangerous and it's a different, it's like, yeah, definite adrenaline. It's, it's a different animal. Yeah. The abolitionists, were you saying, are they like undercover and the thing that they're doing on the phones is like saying, hey, we've got this narrow window of time where nobody's looking at us. We can come in and do what we need to do. We can expose this. Is that what's happening? Yeah, more or less. Really, the, the people that are working in the anti-slavery movement in each community, in each particular type of slavery within a country will be different people. And they're all intimate within their own communities. Okay. And they, for the most part, do work undercover so that the people that are enslaved are entrusting of that individual. And so when they're making calls, they're all working together. They're trying to find windows when the traffickers are, are removed or the managers are removed. And I can quickly go in and make these images and get out. Mm. So there's a lot of, a lot of communication that's going on a lot. Mm. There's, you know, people on the perimeters watching what's happening at all times. And then somebody right beside me shadowing me 
Because when we have to go, we have to go in a nanosecond. We can't hang out. In a way, I feel quite ignorant to the whole topic. I didn't know that the problem was as big or pervasive or the details like you're exposing here. So is slavery outlawed and illegal all around the world? Or is slavery allowed in some countries? Well, that's a great question. It's actually uh, illegal in every country, but it exists in every country. and Every um, country. Every country, pretty much, it exists, wow. and in some countries, it's 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 certainly more accepted, but it's illegal in all of them. Yeah, and I think the most challenging thing about slavery is that it's it's hidden in plain sight, right? Sure. So even in the United States, it could be you know your server at a restaurant, it could be mm-hmm. a guy in a gas station, right, in a little kiosk, and you wouldn't know. You would just assume the person before you is getting paid or receiving the tips you're giving them or can go home at night. But many of them have, you know, they don't have their passport. They're not in control of their lives at all, like at all. They're forced to work just constantly. Yeah. I mean, we see flyers in rest stops (laughs) going by, but but it seems so removed. That is progress. That's That's huge progress. I mean, the idea that there's flyers that when you go into the airport, there's information, the idea that a UN General Assembly, they dedicated an entire week to discussing human trafficking these days. These are all huge, in my mind, accomplishments that clearly didn't exist 10 years ago. So I feel like there's just been a lot of progress, even though the statistical numbers get larger. But that's, of course, uh, largely because it's hard to get stats on things that are hidden and so pervasive that we don't have our grip on yet, you know? So as we further ourselves down the road of really understanding and really being able to gain statistics, I think they're going to get larger before they get smaller. But alongside that, you have a lot more people that are advocating for change, you know? So I think that's important. Right. Once we see the scope and the breadth of the problem, it's hard to look away. It's hard to say, oh, I can't do anything about it. I mean, when you were first presented with the idea that, hey, how would you like to help cover or expose what's going on with slavery in the world? Was there a feeling of, can I really make a difference? Can my images make a difference? Did you have anything like that? I knew that they would make a difference. You did? I didn't feel like that I chose to do that body of work. I feel like I was really called to do it. Oh, like I couldn't cool. sleep. I had to do something. I, I felt utterly compelled that I knew yeah. I had to go do it. It was really like one of those strange life moments where you just know you have to take that step. And isn't it Joseph Campbell that says, if you take one step toward the gods, the gods take 10 toward you. I mean, I, oh. I feel like I've learned so much from this experience and It's not been easy. It's been enormously challenging and frightening. But I also know that it it makes a difference. And I know that each of us, every one of us, can do something in our own skill house, talent house, giving house to help a situation that matters to us, to help help another, right? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty profound that the second you were exposed to this, you were able to open up to that and to be like, this is my calling. This is something I have to do. Whether or not anybody ever does anything different because of my work or my, you know, me taking photographs of the situation, it, I have to do it. And then it did have such a profound effect. It's huge. It's huge what people are seeing. What was the first situation that you were involved in where you were 
brought on site to expose what was going on? My first physical introduction to photographing slavery was in India in the brick kilns. And they're already (laughs) like going to the Giza pyramids. Uh I just remember feeling like I had entered Dante's Inferno. You know, it was like, it was so hot. It was like 130 degrees and you'd see these men, women, and children cloaked in a blanket of smoke, like stacking bricks on their heads, 18 at a time. Each brick weighs three, four pounds. It it, it was incredible and heartbreaking. You'd see these elders in there, people that were stooped over, so skinny, just bones with powder of brick dust on them and stacking bricks. Oh, I remember at one point I started to cry. I, I, I started to have a tear go down my face and the abolitionist who was next to me just shook me abruptly and said, Lisa, you cannot do that. You cannot do that here. There is no room for that. It's not safe for you and it's not safe for them. And in that instant, I realized that I wasn't here to do that. And that I was here to give what I could to bring a remedy to the situation. And that I had to trust people on the ground, like people that do the real work, like these abolitionists that work undercover, that risk their lives every day, not the few days that I'm doing it at a time. Uh And to trust that they would be able to help these people. It was very moving. I mean, on some occasions when we were working, it was so hot that the people, the abolitionists and translators that I was with were vomiting and fainting because of the severity of the heat. And my camera mm-hmm. became too hot to even touch. It stopped working. It You mm-hmm. couldn't touch. It was so hot. And I'd have to jog back to the cruiser, have the, the driver turn the ignition on and pass the camera beneath the, the air conditioning to revive okay. it back to functioning. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking this box, this black box, this camera is getting more good welfare attention than these people ever will. That was like a a real strange thought to have. And I'd run back out there and do more work. And yeah, they're moving bricks around. (laughs) They're they're physical laboring in that heat. Yeah. And just the camera doing nothing but being held in that heat was shutting down. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was very impressive memory. Yeah. Well, shifting over to working in your broader body of work. Can you tell us about what it's like immersing yourself into a culture and kind of becoming part of the group and getting the trust and sharing back and forth and to be able to photograph that? What is that experience like? Or are there any memorable experiences from that? Well, I always say that a stranger is a friend you just haven't met yet. Mm -hmm. When I go out into the world, I'm so curious about people. I'm just curious about, like, when I hear a different language, it's like, I just love it. Yeah. And and I had learned at a young age when I, when I was away, when I, well, not too young, but when I was away, 18 and spending all that time that you don't need language to be with people. You don't need language to live with them, to help, to enjoy, to laugh. You don't. Yeah. And I work 100% of the time with translators, and that's a big process on its own. However, that's nowadays. And I guess my point is, that even with our differences that we have, that it's so easy to have this knee-jerk reaction of being afraid of someone because of that difference, as opposed to being curious or having a sense of wonder about them, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess that's how I see people. Mm -hmm. I, I have this strange feeling when I leave the country and I go elsewhere into these areas it's kind of this um, visceral thing for me, but I, I sort of dump my nationality. I dump my 
female male, I just kind of show up with with a presence. Okay. And I don't mean that in a grandiose way. That I mean that in a really simple way. Right. Because what I'm interested in is is in meeting somebody in that same state. Once you're able to sort of get into that authentic sense of presence with someone, I feel that's when the magic happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that is so wondrous to me. You know, like I, I spend time at the feet of elders around the world. I have had the opportunity of documenting a group of centenarians that were all, you know, over a hundred years old, one woman, 116. And I, I have this very keen memory. I was in Sardinia with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay and another friend, Jay Williams, and I was documenting these centenarians. At the end, I would always kneel at their feet and put my hands on their lap. And at one point, this this woman, 116, like, can you imagine? No. Actually, sorry, I made that mistake. She's 110. That was someone else, 110. She had these young aunties who were like, well, like they're in their 80s or something. They were young. And and she started speaking to me, just just saying all this stuff in Sardinian, let alone Italian. So I had no idea what she was saying, but I did. And the aunties were saying, oh, no, no, she's just babbling. She, she doesn't understand you. And my translator explained to me the situation. And, and, I, and I looked at, at the aunties and I said, no, I understand everything she's saying. Because I knew she was just blessing me. I knew she was just telling me all the good stuff that I needed to know about my life. And that sums it up, you know, like, oh, yeah. what is it that we need to do? And when I would finish working with all these centenarians, I'd ask them, what gift would you give the world with all the experience that you've had? Okay. Invariably, the answer was always the same. And it was always help one another, you know, just mm. help one another. It's the most simple thing. Mm. If your neighbor needs milk, you give them milk. Mm-hmm. I, I, I marvel at that because it's not complicated. Yeah. Ugh. Well, so do you ever have, when you come in to cultures that maybe don't even know, because there's not technology, life beyond what they physically see right there. I'm not saying you're a scary person, but is there, is <laughs> but, there <really? laughs> but is there a bit of like, who is this person? What is she here? I mean, do you have to break through that kind of initial barrier with them in some cases? You know, I don't really have that experience. And I have to say, I imagine most people would, but I've just been doing this so long that mm-hmm. I don't ever feel that way. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I mean about dropping things away viscerally. I, I, I mean, obviously, I don't feel like I'm their neighbor and that mm-hmm. when I walk in, I don't look dissimilar. But I feel always a welcoming presence from people. And I, and I like to think that who we are, what we bring to the table when we interact with one another, you know, whatever mm-hmm. grace we provide or bruceness, whatever it is, it's like life is a mirror. And I think that it's, it's sort of like befriending someone. Mm-hmm. And coming, arriving with an open heart and arriving with authentic honesty, like sure. arriving with the truth about what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, that right. matters. Right. That makes sense to me. I just, uh, I recorded yesterday with Ella Richards and Ella came to the U.S. from Soviet Union as a young girl. And the thing that is really throughout her talk, she made it very clear that being an immigrant and not knowing the language, that you could get a sense from people's eyes, from their gestures, from their everything about their body language Mm -hmm. that made her feel 
Am I unsafe? Am I welcomed? Am I meeting with somebody who has genuine love and compassion in their heart for me or someone who wants to do me harm? So I'm sure that all of that nonverbal is going on when you're making the introductions and when you're you're being welcomed into different communities and different cultures. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you learn to read people well when you're put in situations where you're sort of landing in places very dissimilar where there is not necessarily a shared language or you're the you're the minority, the one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's good. I think it's good. And I have had um, experiences that were of harsher nature, one being in Haiti in a, a very dangerous slum called Cité Soleil. I had met up with these gang members there through this fellow I was working with that was my fixer there. And yeah, they were very suspicious of me. And that took time to undo. And that was a very scary situation for me. I remember being wondering if I'd get out of there actually, but the barrier got broken, you know, and the bridge was built. That's my thing, you know, build bridges. Mm -hmm. Cool. And I can only imagine being an immigrant in this country and what that must have been like for Ella. Mm -hmm. It's something that unless you're in her shoes, you wouldn't be able to really understand, you know? Yeah. And I think it is one of the downfalls. We have a lot of privileges in this country. And I think that to not be aware of that, there are a lot of people here in the U.S. who feel like we live in the greatest country in the world, and they're very arrogant (laughs) about it, and they are very (laughs) selfish about it, and they are very hateful about it in regards to having possession and ownership over what is theirs and what isn't somebody else's. And I think that's the big lesson that we need to learn as a culture of people born and raised in the United States to open our eyes to what is out there on the greater world. Yeah, I I actually think um, as a, a bit of compassionate insight for the United States, one of the issues is that the United States is such a large country. It's mm-hmm. it's huge. So many people never moved. I mean, they don't move out of their state, let alone their country. And people tend to be insular by nature in a way, and they're not interested in things that don't directly affect them. Mm-hmm. So we don't get like the best international news. We never know what's going on. And if if people do get it, they don't particularly resonate with it or care, I feel like, unless it's judgmental. And I I feel that's a a big downfall for us. And at the same time, I can understand how it would happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're in Europe, you can skip over to a country in a few hours. It's not like Mm -hmm. entire countries would fit in one of our little states, right? So it's so interesting. Having a breadth of awareness beyond our own immediacy is such a misfortune not to exercise, not to be aware of you know, mm-hmm. because then we develop this fear of others and fear of difference. And oh, that's such a loss. Right. Okay. What I got from you earlier, you say that when you take your photographs or when you are in a community, in a culture and taking photos, the key thing is permission, right? And so you have presented a body of work that is beautiful. It shows the world. It exposes human indecencies and pain. It sounds to me like you have a definite line as to what is showing appreciation 
and where it could be exploitive. Can you talk a little bit about that fine line when working that mm-hmm. way? Yeah, you know, actually, it's I'm part of a the king of Dubai has this organization called Dubai Cares. And one of the things they're doing within it is delegating this idea of dignified storytelling. So I've been on several of their panels building what that is. Because the thing about going into a situation, especially like where people are enslaved or where people are in refugee crises, where they're definitely not in a power position, you know? Right. And I think that one of the key elements to me is permission. Mm-hmm. It's permission. You don't just go up and take something. And I don't even, in terms of creating photographs, I don't use the word take. I always say make, but mm-hmm. take something from somebody, mm-hmm. a thing or a photograph. Mm-hmm. That that energy, it, it values the word take. Right. I think when, when one goes out in the world, one has to figure out what is it that they're trying to say. And secondly, are, are they trying to show a, a form of horror in which this human being that could be you actually mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is experiencing this horror? Are, do they want to be the poster child of that horror? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to frame it in a way that they're the empowered person in it? I think all of that really matters. I think the language around photography matters. We talk, we, we say words like take, we say words like shoot, I'm going to go shooting today. Mm-hmm. All of that. I just find it so intriguing that, that, Photography has that language, which I do not use, but I have um, never thought of it like that. That is Oh yeah. It's it's always it's kind of a, akin to hunting in terms of language. I was gonna say like hunting, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, those distinctions matter. But I think permission and how one is choosing to share someone's story, visual story matters. I think it matters. It does. Yeah. I this is a topic that is hard to talk about. And I've spoken with other artists, not on the podcast, about the idea that we've gotten to a place in society right now where we really value representation and we we value hearing people's experiences. But the catch-22 with that is it almost seems like you have to be from that particular group to be able to share that story. The criticism is you don't have the the right to tell that story. And I just was curious how what you feel about that or how what your take on that topic would be. You know, my take on all of this, um, but especially what you're saying now, I think it matters. And I do think that it's a point of view. And I believe that mm-hmm. life is absolutely, completely and wholeheartedly perception and how we mm-hmm. perceive things. And I will even dare say, choose to perceive things is, mm-hmm. is kind of how the outcome is. Obviously, the, the people that I photograph largely are not people that look like me. They are not mm-hmm. people that are in the economic space that I'm in. And I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. Does it prevent me from what I believe to be a creator of something ultimately very valuable, not not just to myself or to people who collect my work or museums that house my work or talks I give around the world, whatever that is. But I believe from my perception that it allows, I'll say for the most part, cultures that are daily disappearing to be celebrated, to have been documented, to, it's a reminder to me. It's like you have a sense of intelligence and then you have 
sort of this indigenous wisdom. Mm-hmm. And it, they both are important. And, and if I, as, as a honest living of my life, and I, when I say living, I don't mean in terms of waging, but someone who is living my life, find value in that, that I know will touch people's hearts that will inspire them to be stirred inside, to to perhaps change their attitude, change their mind about another race, that might inspire them to contribute to something beyond their own intimate life to help another person, then mm-hmm. I feel very proud of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think too that it's important to give back and it's all such a fine balance, right? But mm-hmm. it all matters. I think it all matters. Thank you for putting voice to that. I think it's a beautiful way to explain that. It's important work, valuable work, and the intention is everything, I think. The intention is is key. Okay, on a yearly basis, how many different kinds of trips for source of inspiration for your work do you take? Is it pretty regular or does it kind of flow? It flows and sometimes there's a lot going on and sometimes there isn't because I'm either flying somewhere to create images Mm -hmm. or I am flying somewhere for meetings or I am flying somewhere to speak. I just, it just depends, but I tend to be out and about pretty frequently. How does your kind of overall career break down between like the activism piece, the speaking piece, the generating new images, like, because it almost seems like you have several different careers going on under the kind of the the bigger umbrella. I kind of do. The photography is, that's my life, right? That's my sustenance. That's how I survive is by Mm -hmm. collectors, really. And I've been very fortunate with that. I, I always go out and make my work and I come back and I share it. And that's been the same for the slavery, except that the slavery work has gained feet in these other venues, if you will, like definitely activism and things like that. It is like, I mean, I always laugh because I am so bloody busy all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had already this morning, a call with London, a call with Australia and Switzerland b- before we had this podcast, but I love it all. And I feel like I can't not love it. We have three children, one in college, two in high school. And so my trips are frequent, but they're not long because I want to be, I have to be, I want to be present for them, you know? For sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a struggle, you know, the, the career and, and home life. I mean, that's the balance. You can't be saving the world and then your home life suffers. So you have to put in the time and in all those places. Yeah. And the way to save the world is to save yourself and to save your family and to be, in other words, to be, <laughs> yes, <laughs> to be right. present, to be truly, you know, right. present. If you're off at one of these experiences where you need to be speaking on big issues, if on the inside you're feeling bad about what's not being taken care of at home, then you can't help the world yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. because at home is suffering. <laughs> so um, it sounds like a balancing act for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so tell me when you are in those moments where you are meeting new people and generating new work, how do you create the image? I'm sure that the relationship comes first, right? The interaction with people, getting to know them before the camera comes out? Is that true? 
Yes, I, I again, I, I never work without permission, and it's pretty involved. I mean, I go and I, I sit with the community. It's, it's involved project, and then we, we sort of work in this harmony, harmonistic way to create the work together. Um, mm. I don't like to go too into that. Forgive me, because sure. I feel like that takes away from what the work was really about. I don't know how to explain that, but. No, I understand. I like that. the work to sort of stand on its own without being explained. If that doesn't make sense, without the backstory around how it's yeah, created. and it's a personal. It's such a deeply personal interaction that's happening when you look at one of the subjects and they're looking at you. However, the image is set up that you can feel what is being communicated. That's the magic, and yeah. it transcends interpreters. It transcends language. It transcends all of that. Yes, perfect words. I totally, I totally get that. Like I've been following your Instagram, and there's an image that really struck me, and it's the man praying in the cavern and the vastness of that cavern. He's this small person. He's a small figure in the greater shot, but his presence fills that cavern. It's like a deep sense of reverence, a sense of spiritual strength. I mean, there's just so much going on there. And all of your images evoke that. It evokes a conversation. And mm. that's what I've always loved about your work. Yeah, I, I, I felt very grateful to have been given the opportunity and permission to work there. And I did so very quietly. And that light that was coming through, you know, the monks, they ponder the light. It's called That image is called contemplation of light. And oh, okay. they, they literally contemplate the light. And, you know, I look at all these images really like they're teachers, right? To me, for my life. Yeah. And um, that, I, that, that serenity and his aloneness, but, but for me, not loneliness. It's really about connecting with, with oneself and source, you know? I, yeah. I, 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 and there's a little teeny green leaf on that rock, actually, at the base of his... His, his posture, his sitting position. Sure. And it's so, I didn't even see that for like, <laughs> I printed it a few times and I hadn't even seen it. So funny, but really, I love that there's this little green leaf there just sitting there on the rock. But I, I love that image. Yeah. It's one of those surprises. That's the other thing with artwork. We love when there's a surprise, totally, right? Totally. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> As you've said, you don't do many of the outdoor shows anymore, but I mean, I've seen you a couple of times this year. You have this gallery in Sonoma. You have ex exhibitions. Why do you still do the fine art shows, the outdoor art shows? Are they still important to you? Or are they still important part of your business model? Well, you know, it's funny. I stopped doing shows and then I did like two a year and then I was just doing all my other stuff. But then I started thinking about when I do an exhibition, as an example, they're great and they're, they're, they're really neat. And I feel very fortunate to have them inaugurated by special people and to have a lot of the public come. Mm -hmm. However, when I think about museums, it's sort of this niche crowd in a way, you know, mm -hmm. not everybody goes to a museum. And when you're at a show, anyone could come, mm -hmm. anyone and everyone that happens to be walking down that street, you know, a few hundred thousand people, that's a lot of impact. And my mission being to inspire unity, like you have to come hang out in my booth sometime, but it's really fun to watch people really? because you could see them. You could see their minds ticking. You could just see it happening. And 
I guess I feel like it's, it's, it's part of my mission and what I love to do. They are tiring. I love doing it, but you know, they're, they're rather long hours. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it, they're worthy. And I've done a few more this year. And I don't know that I'll be able to continue with that because I do get busy, but they do feel special. They do feel like a part of what needs to be done, I guess, is, for me. Is, is there a sense, is your booth, like you said, come hang out in your booth, is there constant conversations happening about this image or what happened here or just feedback? Oh, constant. There's constant, yeah. constant. I like watching people be inspired as they are with all of us artists. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing. And I, I guess I just feel like it's a great place to be. I mean, that's uh, in large part how my career started many years ago outside of being at a, you know, an agency when I was very young. And there's been a lot of gifts on the way. And the art shows, the, the whole community, although I don't have an opportunity to see so many people anymore, and I'm probably a little out of the sink, but when I fly in for a show and I and I get to hang with everybody. I, I feel like artists are so warm. Everybody's so helpful with one another. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a real nice tribe, I think, and, re- and respect for one another's crafts. And I think for for just really living the life of an artist, I, I just have always found that to be very special at art shows. You know? Well, I, I think that your work has such a deep personal connection. You have immersed yourself into these issues and the work isn't just taking this talk has been so enlightening to me about what makes you tick about where your intention is with your work. And I'm just so inspired by that, that call to action, that activism, that humanitarianism, that getting down into the trenches that you do. There's just so many parts of your personality that are just being realized through this career that you've created. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's been a real sense of learning for me. And the thing I love most about my career, my passion and my life is is that I'm always in this constant state of learning. You know, people aren't my subjects that I photograph. They're my mentors. Mm-hmm. I've learned how to live through them. I never would <laughs> take that for granted, you know. Lisa? Thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been a lot of fun and I appreciate it so much. Back at you. I'm glad we finally made it happen. (laughs) We made it happen. (laughs) I kept pinging you. (laughs) You said, keep Uh, pinging me. (laughs) Just keep pinging. (laughs) Too much going on, but I'll get there. Well, this has been a pleasure and I learned a lot from you. Thank you for sharing your story and have a good rest of your day. That was great. (laughs) Thank you. You too. Have a lovely day. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Well, great talk with Lisa Christine. As always, Douglas, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this one, and I found her to be inspiring and and interesting to kind of broach some of the subjects of of uh, you know uh, you you guys kind of even touched on appropriation, and and uh, oh, yeah. I've talked to other artists about that as well, and and it's an interesting kind of topic to bring into the to the dialogue. It's a tricky subject, and it's one that gets us all a little nervous and. I'm glad that she had a real conversation about where the line is for her, and yeah. she didn't feel like I was accusing or or having oh, it, no. having a turn weren't. on her. I wanted to know where that where that all fits in in the conversation. Sure, where's the line? And um, it's not like she's ever going to shy away from it because I don't think she's ever shied away from anything. That's one of the things I learned. So yeah. interesting talk and and lots of different topics that we dug down into.
Well, Douglas, we've got a couple of big, you're working on some commission work and a big install for your New Jersey clients. and, and uh, Well, you know, we you, had you, one that kind of snuck in ahead of it. We had to put it on pause for a bit because this New Jersey thing, they have to meet with committees and everyone has to have a vote and things have to be determined. So there was a good period of time where it kind of got tabled. Okay. And so you're working with a committee. Did you do the committee thing? That is my favorite trick when you know you're dealing with a committee and just- I know your trick. It, That's pretty funny. <laughs> Will's just, suggestion for the committee is, is have three ideas that are possibilities, but make sure you include a clinker so that somebody yeah, can. <laughs> dude, the clinker is it, man. Make sure you give those people that 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 run their mouths in meetings because I, I came from a corporate world very briefly. Yeah. But if you if you have something that they can make them feel good, yeah. so you drop a real big deuce right there in the rest of your offers. You have these three great offers and then one terrible one. And then they're like, Oh, well, that's a wonderful uh, way to do this. <laughs> what if now, they pick the deuce offer? That's what I'm wondering. Hey, I'm perfectly capable of producing a deuce. <laughs> so while they were making their decisions, we we drove off. We finished and drove off to Madison, and it's for a, a collector. And we did this really cool 20-foot wall for them. And it's this custom house for their sailors. And every little floor, every little component was so specially designed it just blew my mind. This place, awesome. Yeah, I saw some uh, clips of that. That that house is a beautiful install. Really, really crazy. Thanks. I've got one I'm working on myself. I, you know, I I got this studio to work large, and I've got this 18 foot. It's basically it's a wall sized mural. It's 18 feet by nine. Let's see, six, eight, nine. I can't do math. Uh, 18 feet by nine, nine 18, feet tall. And I always so have I'll to slow down. 18 feet. Holy. Shit balls. That's huge. Yeah, and it's a triptych, so six feet by nine feet panels. So I can put all three together if I want to work on it all together. I but I I close the door off to my studio, so I have to exit through the other door. So okay. I, I at least have a back door I can go out. So wow. yeah, it's a monster. So I will be doing that this month, and you know how I like to work large. I'm putting that to the test. All right, that's got to be all installed right. before Thanksgiving. So I've definitely been cranking on that. So ready to go. It's all mapped out, and um, no pun intended, ready to yeah. go. Can't wait to see it. All right, sounds Thanks, awesome, sir. Well, uh, well, I think we should keep this kind of quick. We decided. Out of the blue, day ago, we're going to launch a weekend uh, sale. So we're putting stuff in our front yard and inviting people to come. So oh, we got man. a lot going on. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you guys have done those before. Those are always pretty successful. I feel like if people walk in the door, then they're going to buy something at those shows. For sure. Yeah. I'm actually doing my first open studio myself tomorrow night. Uh, there is a First Fridays event down here at the Lena Street Lofts where I, I have my studio here in Santa cool. Fe and my my little closet where I'm I'm set up here with my podcast. They're not allowed in to see that. That's <laughs> so weird. Look, my kids think it's, it's like, super what, creepy. What does he do in there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my youngest wanted to draw. She was trying to do some pen and ink stuff and got frustrated at school because they're all – all the nibs, of course, are all blown out at the art class. So okay. she was in here doing some drawing. So. Anyway, awesome. I'm excited about doing that, getting some work on the walls and, and sweeping the floors up and opening the doors, seeing what happens. Yeah, this is the first time you're having the public into your studio since you yeah. started up in there? Yep, absolutely. Cool. It'll be interesting awesome. to see if anybody, anybody comes by. All right. Well, good luck with that. And Thanks, uh, catch you next yeah, week, no man. Yeah, no rain at your home show. You can just have a great weekend, and, and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye, everyone. 
This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, check out Will's website at willarmstrongart.com and my website at sigwithglass.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. 